So carrying on from where we left off last week, and I read to the end of chapter 8. It says this. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sir went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, it grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, they believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not teach him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerenassines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on on hearing this answer, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them, to tell no one what had happened. Well, we're going to have the remainder of our main Bible reading. So, you know where we are, picking up Luke chapter 9 from verse 1. Luke 9 verse 1, and continues as follows. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. 
Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew part apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes. Two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. But they, there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that there was praying alone the disciples. Not, sorry, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others said, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Well, do leave uh, that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. Just a few things to say as we begin. There's an outline of where we're going in your service sheet. It looks like this. So do make use of that as you would like to. Some people like to make notes as they go through and uh, helps them concentrate. And then at the end, um, there will be an opportunity for any questions or comments. Um, so if there's things uh, that you'd like to be clarified at the end or parts of the passage that you were hoping something would be said about but there weren't, then then is your opportunity. Uh, we'll take a few questions then. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word together now. And we pray, please, that you would help us to uh, listen to it, to trust it, and obey it. And in that way, that we would vindicate that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign over us. us. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, says Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. To deny yourself, or self-denial, is a widely misunderstood concept today. For many, self-denial is understood as saying no to something and everything. It's a life of abstinence and of foregoing pleasure. It's not something that you put on your CV or look for in your friends. It sounds boring. But more than that, it is a betrayal of self, say many. We're forever being told that we must be true to ourselves. Our culture applauds those who are true to themselves. Self-denial is understood as the direct opposite of this. It's not only boring, it's wrong, morally wrong. But Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. As we read through our passage today, I wonder if there was anything that caught your eye that puzzles you. 
Now, it's quite a helpful question to be asking as you read through um, a passage of the Bible. It's something I often do when I first read uh, a text. What's surprising here? What's puzzling? Now, in many ways, these are the things that need to be addressed, um, else you're going to go away still feeling puzzled and shortchanged. But these puzzles and surprises can be very fruitful to consider because they often reveal how our thinking is different from God's thinking. You know, when we expect something else, when we think, well, I would have said it like this, or I would have done it like that, it reveals that we're not thinking God's thoughts after him. And they become fruitful points of learning, therefore. Now, there are a number of things that might have grabbed your attention as we read through, which puzzled you. Let me mention three. We all know that Jesus speaks in parables to make it easier for people to understand. Yet Jesus says he speaks in parables to conceal his message. Does Jesus want people to understand his message or not? Then, the man who is healed of demons is told by Jesus to go and tell of how much Jesus has done for him. Whereas the parents of the girl who Jesus raised from the dead were charged to tell no one what had happened. So why is the man to speak, but the parents are to keep quiet? Seems very inconsistent. Then the disciples are sent out to preach the gospel Yet they are commanded to tell no one that Jesus is the Christ and that the message of the cross has been concealed to them. So are they preaching the gospel or aren't they? So on the one hand, you've got understanding and proclamation. On the other hand, you've got concealment and keeping quiet. Why do those things appear so contradictory? How are we to make sense of them? I mean, it is a bit of a puzzle, this one. After Jesus has told the parable of the sower, he then explains its meaning. But in between, in between telling the parable and explaining its meaning, he explains the purpose of the parables. It's there in Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Luke 8, verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. To understand the purpose of the parables, it's going to be helpful for a moment to consider the word secrets in verse 10. The idea of a secret is something which is hidden unless it's revealed. Now, the secret here concerns the kingdom of God, not least that the kingdom of God has now arrived in the coming of Jesus. And it's a secret because one cannot know it unless it's been revealed to you. And Jesus' point is that to some, the secret of the kingdom of God is given but to others, it has not. In the first case, 
in this case, the first group consists of his disciples who are interested and begin to gain a glimpse of who he is. The second group, well, that consists of the rest of the crowd who listen but have no commitment. So corresponding to a distinction in his hearers, there's a distinction in his teaching. In other words, Jesus is saying that his parables are not to make his teaching clear, but to divide his hearers. Now this idea of Jesus bringing division is what we've been led to expect from the beginning uh, of Luke. Back in Luke uh, chapter 2.34, if you were with us then, Simeon said these words uh, to Jesus' mother. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the promised child who represents God's coming salvation. However, this ominous note also comes, that Jesus will divide Israel. There are these two groups, those who reject Jesus are headed for a fall, those who accept him are headed for vindication. Jesus' ministry will show where people's hearts really are before God. Interestingly enough, the actual parable of the sower teaches on the same point. Back in Luke 8, 11, Jesus explains that the seed in the parable is God's word. The soils, they represent the different kinds of people and their responses to this word. And Jesus describes four responses. Jesus is telling his disciples what to expect from the preaching of the gospel. A mixed response. And it's not that the word is semi-effective and that it only works in some. The word is effective in all, but the effects are different. There's nothing faulty about God's word, and so it's not to be tampered with. In establishing the kingdom of God, there will be this division, depending on how people respond to the gospel. It's what to expect, says Jesus. And our response to God's word becomes then the measure of our place in the kingdom of God. At this point, let's have a look at the man who is healed of demons and the parents of the girl whom Jesus raised from the dead. Why was the former told by Jesus to go and tell of how much Jesus has done, whereas the latter's charged to tell no one what had happened? Why was the man to speak, but the parents to keep quiet? Well, the clue is in the pigs. In the first account, there are pigs. A large herd of them, we're told, verse 32. And there are none in the second account. Now, I wonder, what do you think of when you think of pigs? I mean, in today's culture, do they still signify kind of greed or filth? I mean, they were the choice of George Orwell in Animal Farm to represent the corrupt leaders. But that's our culture. To understand the significance of these pigs, we've got to go to Jerusalem, 
to first century Judaism. Pigs were considered by Jews as unclean animals. So the presence of pigs suggests that either Gentiles or non-practicing Jews own the pigs. Now this starts to make sense when you look at where they are. Have a look at verse 8, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasians, which is opposite Galilee. And that's in contrast to where they go next in chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, returned to Galilee that is, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. There is this change in geography. The man is in Gentile territory, whereas the parents are in Jewish territory. And with these different territories become, comes different expectations. The Jews were there impressed by miraculous signs in a way that the Gentiles are not. I mean, the people of the Gerasians are fearful of Jesus and they want him to go away. Whereas the Jews, they flocked to see him and be healed by him. And this had implications for Jesus' ministry. To be swamped by the Jews stood to hinder his ministry. And the parents are told not to speak of the miracle, rather than risk exacerbating the crowd with further desires for healing. In Gentile territory, there's no such danger. And so the man is free to speak. Now, all of this relates to the various expectations that people have of Jesus. And what we're going to be seeing is that the type of commitment that that will be required of the disciples will be related to what those expectations are. So if, for example, the focus of Jesus' ministry is understood in terms of healing, well, that is going to set a certain expectation of a disciple's life, one of comfort. Excessive focus on his works of power will, in the end, undermine the type of commitment he will ask from his people. Now, he is not going to be raising people from the dead on a daily basis. A focus on healing is not just a question of different emphasis, but different expectation. And the type of commitment that will be required of them, should they follow him, is one of suffering and not comfort. It's in Luke chapter 9 that the disciples are sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel and heal. And we learn something of the content of what they preached when we compare chapter 9 verse 2 with chapter 9 verse 6. So chapter 9, verse 2, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In chapter 9, verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, a careful comparison reveals a parallel. So uh, to heal at the end is paralleled with healing everywhere, but proclaiming the kingdom of God finds its parallel with preaching the gospel. That is to say, when the disciples preach the gospel, 
They were speaking about the nearness of the kingdom of God. They challenged people to see the evidence of its power and nearness. And people who refused were to know that God's judgment was also drawing near. The disciples were preaching the gospel at this point, but it it wasn't fully unpacked at this stage. Nor could it have been, since Jesus told them in no uncertain terms to tell no one that he was the Christ. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. The reason given is in verse 22, that they do not yet understand what kind of Christ he will be, that he will be a Christ who will suffer and die. Now the word in verse 22, must, is a very significant one in Luke's gospel. We met it before, uh, if you were here. Uh, first came across it in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 49. It was there that Jesus, if you remember, said to his parents, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He must be in his father's house about his father's business because he is the son. There's no question that he's going to do anything other than his father's will because that is what the son does. The son obeys the father. And this anticipates his entire mission. And this language of must appears again and again. And each time it's used to repeatedly refer to the Father's purpose, which Jesus will fulfil in his preaching and suffering. Now here in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, it highlights the Father's purpose for the Son, that he must suffer and die and be raised. And until the disciples have understood that, they're in no position to proclaim Jesus as the Christ because they would risk misrepresenting what kind of Christ he was. And Jesus, quite frankly, was not prepared for that to happen. And indeed, a big theme in the Bible is that God is not willing to be misrepresented. Notice, therefore, that it's not enough to say that Jesus is the Christ. But what kind of Christ is he? And what's below the surface? And what's below the surface? Well, that needs to come out. That needs to be made explicit and scrutinised and brought in line with God's word. For the disciples, they didn't put it all together at this point. And that's because it was not given to them to understand at this point. So picking up at verse 44... But while they were all marvelling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, the point is not that the saying is utterly incomprehensible to them. You know, the picture of uh, the Son of Man being portrayed is a perfectly comprehensible idea. The problem was that they could not understand how this could take place 
in the context of God's plan for his Christ. That is to say, it's not hard to understand that Jesus died. Anyone can understand that. But to understand how his death relates to God's purpose for the world, that's a different matter. That needs to be revealed by God. And it wouldn't be until after Jesus' death and resurrection that they would put it all together. It would be the coming of the Spirit in power that will enable these disciples to preach the gospel in its fullness as Luke will bear witness in his second volume, the book of Acts. Well, as we conclude, we are going to do a calculation, a sum. At various points in the Bible, the biblical authors pause to make a calculation to evaluate the choice before the reader. Now, many of you will know that I studied mathematics at university and for a number of years was a math teacher, so I love doing sums. But even if you don't, don't worry, because this one is a no-brainer. And it's the question about, is self-denial worth it? Let's pick it up from uh, Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, whilst our culture might think that to deny yourself is boring, morally wrong, even harmful, in the Bible, it's fundamentally about aligning ourselves with God and his purpose for the world. We were uh, considering about what God's purpose, what the purpose of God for our lives is last week. Then it was put in terms of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, here it's put in terms of life, eternal life with God. Self-denial is not simply saying no to something. It's about accepting God's purpose for our lives and not our own. In the case of Jesus, it was a self-denial that said, not my will, but your will be done, and took him to the cross. Self-denial acknowledges that there will need to be a commitment here from us. Our inclination is to misrepresent God and his will for us. There is a saying no to that and a saying yes to knowing God and his will as he's revealed it to us, of accepting God and his Christ and his way of doing and seeing things. It means that when we're surprised by what God says, it becomes an opportunity for us to change and to get to know God better. The question of self-denial is, at the end of the day, 
a question of repentance, of getting in line with God and his purpose, and therefore a question about whether we accept or reject eternal life with him. Well, let me pray, and then I'll open it up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity that your word brings in to help us understand this concept of self-denial. In our culture, it's a word that's um, not good and to be avoided. Here, as Jesus says, that that must characterize anyone who would come after him. And we thank you, therefore, that we're to understand it in terms of um, following Jesus, as he says, not my will, but your will be done. We pray, please, that we'll be quick to say no to our own purposes for our lives and to accept and be in line with your purposes. And we thank you that we've got nothing to worry about, that whilst there is an expectation of uh, being maligned in the way that Jesus was, that we follow him, that there will be a resurrection, a vindication, and eternal life with him. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'll just give you a moment to collect your thoughts and then any questions or comments, you are most welcome. Hi, yes. Yes, thank you. Jasar, isn't it? Yes. So just, I'll repeat the question for the recording. So Jasar's comment was, um, uh, uh, do we, uh, this idea of, is self-denial, um, let me say, let me say it and see if I get it right. Is self-denial, is that like self-control? You've heard, heard the idea that um, it's self-control, but then you just think, actually, if Jesus had self-control, he ended up dying. So how is that sort of self-control, that sort of thing? Basically, you're thinking, is, is self-denial the same as self-control? Is it different? Would that, if I answered that, would that? Yeah. Okay, scratch away, Rich. Okay. So, yes, um, I think they are related. I think the... It's interesting, let me answer the question in the sideways route. When I was first working on this, I was initially focusing on suffering, and basically Jesus says, if you follow me, um, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, there's an expectation of suffering, that is, is the Christ suffered, so his followers would suffer. But I think that's jumping the gun, because there's something which comes before the suffering, which is the denying yourself, um, and put in terms of um, uh, doing God's will, um, in the case of Jesus, 
the father's purpose for the son was that he would go to Jerusalem and lay down his life. And so in, in that sense, the denying yourself is... So the suffering comes as a result of him doing the father's will for him. Um, but I think that's helpful because I think with the self-denial, and I think you get this with the self-control as well, is that they... Um, you can do those independent of somebody else. So, like, self-control, I can just not... Um, I, I can just not have... I cannot have that extra slice of cake, or I can... If, if I'm feeling angry, I cannot lash out. There's that kind of um, control of my faculties. Um, and similarly, self-denial. I mean, self-control probably sounds a bit more positive, um, but self-denial, that kind of feels like you're missing out on something. That's just sort of saying no. But I think the context in both of these is the reason why we're doing the things. So it's not just, a, you know, like every parent wants their children to learn self-control because it's a good thing. That here, this deny yourself is put in terms of denying our own purposes and then accepting God's purposes for our lives. So it's a kind of a putting off our own desires, which the Bible just assumes are not going to be, you know, it's not, it's not going to be thinking God's thoughts after him, but then accepting um, uh, uh, God, God and his Christ and his, his ways. So, um, so I don't know if that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of helpful. Yes, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Very good, yeah. And you could say, as we uh, orientate ourselves on, on Christ and follow him, he might say, have self-control in your anger, don't lash out. But that feels there's a bit more going on than simply you just got this you know, isolated characteristic. Thanks, Josiah. Great. Joel. Yes. Um, and in, in, in doing so, it causes a lot of financial hardship on the owner of the herd of the pigs. Mm. I just wanted to sort of maybe expand on, on why he, he does that. Because it's maybe not explicitly mentioned in this gospel, but in the other gospels, it's mentioned that the owner, like the town, chases him out mm. after doing this. Okay, thanks, Joel. So the question is in chapter 8, verse 30. It talks about the fact that the um, uh, the demons. It, yeah, the question is: It looks like Jesus has mercy on the demons, sends them into the pigs rather than to the abyss. Then obviously that's got to have implications for the people who keep the herd of pigs because they're going to lose them all. How do we make sense of that? So I did have a think about that question in advance. Um, the commentary is not very helpful. The commentary says uh, uh, this passage uh, uh, doesn't answer those questions, and therefore we need to contend ourselves <laughs> with the questions that it does answer. So in that sense, I don't have anything particularly helpful to say. One thing it did hint at um, was this idea that, because interestingly, the pigs die, and there was a hint of... Um, uh, 
we're seeing something of the intent of the demons in terms of, in contrast to Jesus, who's bringing life. Often, you know, you know demon Satan is characterized as not only lying about God and his Christ, but also bringing death. And so in that sense, it's quite graphic that you see that these demons in a man, actually what they do to the pigs. And if, if that's the case, Jesus might think, actually, that's, that's a sufficiently valuable learning point that the welfare of the pigs um, uh, is not in question. Um, but interestingly, it is interesting that what's happening here, the people do not like. And you see a big contrast to the Jews who love his miracles, and that's why they're flocking. In fact, they're waiting for him to return to Galilee, whereas here, they don't, they don't want him at all, um, even despite the fact that, yeah, sure, the pigs have died, but here's a man who's, who's had an absolutely uh, terrible time of being possessed by this demon, and now he's well in his mind, but they're not, they're, they're not impressed by that. They don't want more of that. They just want him to clear off. So I guess it reveals something about, yeah, they're not, they're not in line with what Jesus is doing. They're not learning and thinking about why is he doing this? What are we to learn from this? So I'm sorry if it's a bit unsatisfactory, but it's, yeah, I can't say any more. Go on, Nikki. Yes, spot on. I think so. Um, so just for the recording, when the disciples, although later on they put it all together, at this point, so in chapter 9, verse... Um, where is it? 9, verse 6, it says, They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Uh, yeah, are we right to think that they're not doing a whole lot more than just saying, the kingdom of God, it's here, guys, and we can... You witnessed its power in terms of the driving out the demons and the, and the healing of the miracles. In other words, um, that's, I think that's, that's where we're at. I mean, and it's a helpful observation because I think if, if we're not thinking of this whole idea of um, enjoying the ride, you can just think they're preaching the gospel. Great. There are two ways to live. Back here in chapter 9, verse 6, two ways to live, if you don't know, is a, a gospel outline that students have been learning but they don't know two ways to live. Um, uh, they will know two ways to live, or you know, the equivalent. Uh, but um, here they are, you know, they're not doing a whole lot more than saying, <clears throat> the kingdom of God is here, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, um, as witnessed by, um, by the miracles. Um, yes. You happy with that? Anyone else? All done? Go on, Susie. Go on. That last one was a short one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
Yes. So um, in 944, it says, let these words sink into your ears. Seems like quite strong, like kind of you need to think about this. But then it says they didn't understand because it was concealed from them. I think, on the one hand, you could say, the, even if you can't understand it, there is still an ought. You know, these, these things are of first importance that the Christ must suffer. Therefore, just because you can't understand doesn't mean that you ought not to understand. But I think that probably isn't what's going on here. I wonder if this is more. And Jesus knows that there's a timeline and that after his death and resurrection, um, he says, remain in Jerusalem and receive the Spirit's power. And he, after he's resurrected, he's with them for many more days to teach them these things. And the Spirit brings that understanding as they put it together. So um, to what extent he's saying here, like, mark these words. You, know, you don't understand them now because now is not the time for them to be revealed to you, but they will be revealed, and therefore I'm preparing you by telling you now so that after my death and resurrection, you know, we will revisit this and, and you will put this together and understand how my death is absolutely central to the purposes of God for the uh, redemption of humanity. So I think it's, I think it's, I think it's more that. Does that help? Cool. All right, let's uh, leave it there. Do, um, do I encourage you to keep talking about these things with one another. Um, Bombs, if you want to know any more, or ask me further, then just grab them at the end. But we're going to sing um, a song now to reflect on the kind of Christ that Jesus is uh, with um, the song from Heaven You Came. So let's stand and sing. <laughs>